Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Mark, chapter 9, and starting at page 30. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. I uh, imagine a good number of you know that every Monday afternoon from 1.30 to 3.30 we gather for a staff meeting. Uh, We meet over in the coffee bar. And so if you're walking along the path uh, to the church office, uh, you can look in through the window and see us meeting. Now just imagine that tomorrow you happen to be walking along that path and you look through the door, uh, through the window and see us having a heated debate. Uh, You can see on the faces of the different team members that it's not a pleasant engagement. They're not just a sort of animated, but there's frustration and irritation written all over their ugly mugs, if I can put it that way. And then you come into the church centre and make your way round to the church office, and you can hear the sound that's coming through from our meeting, that the sound of sort of muffled but raised voices. You can hear people shouting over each other. And then uh, the door flings open, and I storm out, and as I walk past you, you say to me, yeah, everything Okay. And I reply, it's that lot in there. They're having a right old go at each other. They're arguing over who's the greatest. They all think they're better than the rest. And you say, oh dear. And I say, oh dear indeed. I can't believe it's got to this because it's obvious who's the greatest. It's me and I storm off. (laughs) What a thing. I mean, the fact that we'd argue like that isn't what you'd expect of us. And to be quarrelling over who's the greatest really is very unbecoming, but certainly not what you'd expect in Christian leadership. But that is precisely what we have happening here in our Bible passage today. Look with me at verse 34. The disciples were arguing about who was the greatest. They all wanted to be top dog. They all thought too highly of themselves. And when you have an overinflated view of yourself and you think you're the greatest, then you think that everybody else isn't as good as you and it always results in ructions. But here's the alarming thing. While the staff team are far too self-controlled and frankly far too British to ever let it get to that, don't think it isn't an issue for us and don't think that it's just the staff team, but it's an issue for all of us. 
I've been trying to get under the skin of, of, of how we know that this is an issue for us. I mean, uh, just think about this, how you respond when someone offends you. And what do you say? Don't they know who I am? What right do they have to treat me like that? They're treating me like dirt. Now, now, don't get me wrong. Of course, it's wrong that people treat you badly, but do you see your reaction? You know, he, they... Or maybe turn it around, think about the times that you've been rude to someone else. I reckon we only do that when we think that we're better than them because they're below us. And in some way, we have a right to be rude. Now, that's the thing this morning. When we think we're great and we think we're someone, we don't treat others well, and we certainly won't serve them. You see, the way the world operates is that we try and make something of ourselves, try and reach an exalted position in our careers, in life, so that others serve us. Now, look, that is the big issue at the heart of our passage this morning. But let's not start in the middle at verse 34. Let's start at the beginning. And the first point, if you like taking um, notes, uh, with Jesus teaching the disciples about sacrifice, uh, verses 30 and 31. Jesus here is taking the disciples on, a, on a, what I might call a leadership training retreat. Verse 30. They left that place, uh, the place where, remember last week, they had um, delivered uh, a boy of an evil spirit. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Now, Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples you see what's going on here? Jesus getting away from the crowds to a private location because he didn't want any distractions. He needed the disciples' full attention and he wanted to teach them. Uh, what he wanted to teach them now was of such importance that, that he didn't want any disturbance. As he spoke to them in verse 30, it's as if he said, right, I want you all to turn off your mobile phones. I need your complete attention now. Focus. What then we're about to hear from the lips of Jesus is crucial. And so as we listen in to these words, we do well to be sure that we're not drifting off at this point. Please, if you're thinking about Sunday lunch, just forget about it for the moment. Look what he says halfway through verse 31. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. Now look, this is so important that Jesus repeats it three times in three chapters. Uh, here are the references if you want them. Chapter 8, verse 31. Chapter 9, verse 31 here. And again in chapter 10, verse 33. Three times in three chapters, Jesus says the same thing, almost word for word. He says, verse 31, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, and then he's going to be killed, and after three days he will rise again. Now I guess that is no surprise to the majority of us here. We know how the life of Jesus pans out, so we're not shocked as we read this, but it was a huge surprise to the first disciples. And although the big thrust is not a surprise to us, I reckon some of the details, if we look at them closely, might arrest us. First, Jesus says the Son of Man must die. The Son of Man, the greatest, will die. The Son of Man figure features in the Old Testament book of Daniel, written about 600 years before Christ. Daniel 7 begins by describing the, the, the powerful, the grotesque, wicked beasts of the evil underworld that are causing havoc throughout the world. Uh, not least of all, they're causing havoc by attacking and persecuting God's people. But then the Son of Man is brought center stage. 
God the Father, called the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7, gives the Son of Man all authority and sovereign power over everything and everyone, even over the mighty power, powers of the, of the dark forces of evil. Now that, of course, is precisely what we've just seen from Jesus in chapter 9. If you were here last week, you'll remember it. Faced with an evil spirit from the dark underworld, Jesus exercised the demon-possessed boy with just a word. He did what no one else was able to do. He demonstrated his power, his authority over the evil forces in the heavenly realms. We've just been given then a glimpse of the awesome power and authority of the Son of Man. So what a surprise then to read verse 31. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. You see the surprise? The greatest one in the entire universe, the one who has power over everything and everyone, that one is going to be given into the hands of men and be killed, allowing himself to suffer death at the hands of men. What a surprise. The second surprise here, although I recognize it's not a surprise for most of us, is that the second surprise is that he will rise again. After death, he'll rise again. End of verse 31 it comes. It's not a surprise because we know how the story ends. Indeed, it's precisely because of the resurrection that we're here 2,000 years later. Had Jesus not risen from the dead, he'd be no greater than any other world leader of antiquity and we wouldn't be following him today. His resurrection is the thing that sets Jesus apart from all other leaders in the past. But just because we know this, please don't lose the awesome wonder of it all. Don't allow the familiarity of Jesus' resurrection to allow you to contemptuously be blasé about it. Oh yeah, Jesus died. Look, Those of us who've suffered the agony of losing someone close to us can surely see just how spectacular this is. Those of us who've sat there next to a loved one just moments after they've died. It's something you'll never forget. I never forget the time it happened with me and my mum. You know, you look at them and, and what you do to be able to bring them back to life, but you can't. And then desperately the medics tell you that there's nothing they can do either and whether you verbalize it or not, you want to ask them, are you sure, are you sure you can't? Of course there comes a point when, when that's it, when death wins and dead people don't come back to life. But at the end of verse 31, that's precisely what Jesus said would happen to him. Please don't lose the surprise of it and the wonder of it just because you know it. And crucially, and this is the... Very significant for this morning. Please don't lose the order of it. The Son of Man will die and only then will he rise. Death and suffering comes before resurrection and glory. Now I'll come back to why that's important a bit later. And it's these things that the disciples must understand because Jesus' death and resurrection is at the heart of the gospel. This is the very center of the good news about Jesus. So Jesus took his disciples away on a leader's retreat so that they would understand this. It's the basis for eternal salvation, the very reason Jesus came. They could not be considering a more important issue. Jesus died in our place to bring us forgiveness and a relationship with God. He rose from the dead, giving us assurance of life beyond the grave. But here's the thing this morning. Once we've understood the gospel and once we've accepted it, this then becomes a pattern for us to follow. 
the greatest, the Son of Man, became the least. On the cross, he took the punishment. He took the place of the most foul and disgusting people who ever walked the planet. He became sin for us. The highest in the universe could not have sunk any lower. The greatest became the least and the servant of all. And he sunk to such depths before he was raised to glory. And that's why what happens next is so alarming. Secondly, the disciples arguing about being the greatest. You see, Jesus took his disciples on this training retreat, but verse 32, they didn't understand what he meant and they were afraid to ask him about it. And it's precisely because they didn't understand this that the very next thing that they did was start bickering about who was the greatest. Verse 33. They came to Capernaum uh, when he was in the house. He asked them, what are you arguing? What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they'd argued about who was the greatest. It takes me back to the times when our children were smaller and we'd be on the road in the car and the kids were squabbling in the back seat. And I'd ask them to pipe down, but they kept at it. And when I could stand it no longer, I'd turn around and say to them, I'm not going to tell you anymore. Will you just be quiet? Sorry, I don't drive like that. You understand Now, you won't be surprised to see that Jesus showed much more restraint than me. He waited until they arrived at Capernaum and were in the house. It's as if they, you know, parked the car and unloaded everything. They're in the house. And then calmly he asked them, verse 33, what were you arguing about? And verse 34 is very telling. They kept quiet. They kept quiet, verse 34, because they'd been arguing about who was the greatest. They kept quiet because they knew they should never have been arguing about such a thing. Boasting about being the best is is always unbecoming for anyone. But disciples of Jesus really shouldn't be wanting to be top dog. It's always wrong, but it's all the more embarrassing because it comes straight off the back of all that Jesus has just been teaching them. The Son of Man, the greatest in the entire universe, was going to offer himself in self-sacrificial love. He was going to die in weakness. The Son of Man was going to become nothing. And yet they're talking about being the greatest. Of course, only hours earlier, we saw, as we saw last week, the, the disciples had been unable to deliver the demon-possessed boy. You'd have thought they'd have realized that they really weren't that special after all. But hey, it happens to us as well, doesn't it? We make mistakes, we say wrong things, we do all sorts of things. There's all sorts of things we can't do in no time at all. We think we're brilliant. Here they were, every one of them trying to make a case for why they were top dog, and we do the same. We may not verbalize it quite like this, but we think we're something special. And here's the problem. As soon as we begin to think that way, we'll be ready to put others down and expect them to serve us. And so from the disciples arguing about being the greatest, we turn thirdly to Jesus teaching the disciples about greatness, verses 35 to 37. Look at verse 35. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve. The posture Jesus took is important detail here. To sit down was to adopt the position of the teacher. We've already seen Jesus took his disciples away on a leader's retreat, but despite him trying to get their full attention, they clearly haven't got it. It hasn't sunk in. They haven't understood it. And so now here is Jesus helping them by showing them that he's the teacher and they really must listen to him. 
Just as the voice from heaven told Peter, James, and John while they were up the mountain. Do you remember a couple of weeks back, verse 7? This is my son, said God the Father. Listen to him. So now here is Jesus taking a culturally recognized position that shouts loud and clear, you've got to listen to what I'm saying. It's as if Jesus is saying in verse 35, now come here a minute, we need to sit down and have a talk. And he said, verse 35, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. In the kingdom of heaven, the greatest, those who want to be first, need to be last. In God's economy, being last is how you show that you are first and greatest. Being a servant is how to be number one in God's kingdom. Do you see how that fits? It's exactly what Jesus is doing. You've got to go down in order to be up. Precisely what Jesus will be teaching that he will do. He is the greatest, the great son of man. He came from heaven to show the way we sing. He left the splendor of heaven to inhabit the the squalor of a stable. He came to serve. He came to die. And he came to die the most degrading and humiliating death possible. Death on a cross. And because he is the greatest in the entire universe, and because he went lower than anyone else in bearing the sin of the world on the cross, so he has descended further and in a more exaggerated way than we ever can. And now, once we've allowed him to serve us like that, we must be ready to do the same. The king has shown us what greatness looks like in his kingdom. Greatness is service. Stooping low to serve is what leads to glory. Well, let's start pulling all this together. Put some flesh on the bones then. See how Jesus is is completely turning the world's way of thinking upside down. Largely, the world applauds success in in business, in a career, in sport, whatever. So much of this world is about getting to the top. So very early on in life, we teach our children that they have to do well at school if they're going to get on in life, by which we mean do well, have a position. By the time they take their GCSEs, and certainly as they study for A-levels, or as undergraduates here, you will know that it's a tough old world out there. There's a dog-eat-dog mentality in the big bad world, and unless you shine, you'll struggle to get on and get up. And, of course, getting on is what really matters. That's the message that dominates. I know people say other things. I'm just saying that's the, the, the dominant message of the world, is it not? And, of course, once we're in the world, uh, in, particularly in the world of business, and try to carve out a career for ourselves, we know all this all too well. If we're going to be top dog, we have to put others down. Not everyone can be at the top of the tree, so to beat others to the promotion, we have to outshine them in the interview. We have to beat them. I don't need to tell you that the workplace is highly competitive and a pretty ruthless place at times. If I'm going to be the greatest, I have to put you down in some way or other. And of course, when that happens, people get hurt. And when we live like that, we never rest See, live like that, and we're always striving to be the greatest. And even if we happen to be one of the few who make it to the top of the tree, then we're always looking over our shoulder to see who's coming up behind us ready to knock us off our perch. It's a horrible way to live. And so Jesus says there's another way, a much, much better way, and that is to be the servant of all. End of verse 35. Let me tell you a story of greatness. Uh, Some years back, I needed to catch an early train 
for a meeting in London that day. And on the way, I had to collect something uh, from the church office. So I popped in at just after six in the morning, surprised to see there was a light on in the church centre. I presumed that it had been left on from the night before. And so I went in to, to turn it off and bumped into someone in the church centre from the church family. The light was on because they were cleaning the toilets. They went early to clean the toilets because they had a busy day themselves. It, I, I know them, I know what job they do. Every day is a busy day for them. I had no idea this person did this week in and week out. There they were at the crack of dawn, out of sight of everyone else, ready and willing and happy, serving the church family in the lowliest of ways, cleaning the loos. That's greatness. Doing the least of jobs to serve others, to serve us, to serve us lot. Imagine us all being like that. Imagine how wonderful it would be to live that way. Consider how different that is to being in a world where you have to be To be great, you have to put others down. Where greatness is reaching a point where everyone else serves you. Jesus turns it all on its head. He says greatness is serving others and serving those who are nothing. Look at verse 36. Not hard to picture the scene in verse 36. Jesus sitting down, teaching his disciples. He beckons a child over and a little boy comes towards him. And then he gives the little lad a hug. And he says, verse 37, whoever welcomes one of these little children by name welcomes me. Jesus took a child because children had no status in first century Jewish society. Uh, that's not to say their parents didn't love them. Of course they did. But rather, than, uh, rather I'm saying they were, they were considered to be nothing in society. Being around children wouldn't help you get on in life. Now next week we're going to see how Jesus applies this very specifically. But for now, the point is simple. We need not only to be ready to be servants, verse 35, but we need to be ready and willing to to serve the, the nobodies, children, little ones, those who can give us nothing in return, those who are considered nothing by the world around us. As we close then, let me give you three examples of what this will look like in the church, in the family, and in the workplace. First, in the church. Let me tell you about a couple I knew from my days in London. They're a very able couple, highly educated. They both had very good jobs. They were really lovely people, well-adjusted, pleasant, kind. As a result, they weren't short of friends. You'd have loved them. You'd have enjoyed being around them. I certainly did. But I tell you about them this morning because almost every time I saw them in church, they were speaking to the misfits. They spoke to people who didn't quite fit in. If a homeless person came in among us at church, and it happened quite often in London's West End, then there were Kyle and Katie talking to them and helping them in appropriate ways. They they hung out with these socially awkward people, lonely people, you know, those who always seemed to be on their own after the service, except they weren't on their own for long because Kyle and Katie would be there alongside them, chatting away to them. And the thing was, it wasn't just on a Sunday. They had these people round for meals in their house. They were friends to them. I don't mean by that they were kind of making an effort to be a friend because they knew that's what they ought to do. They were actually friends with these people. It costs to serve people like that. You don't get anything back. And as you listen to their troubles, it takes it out of you. That's greatness. That's what Jesus is talking about in verse 37. Not just serving children, but the little people of this world. And I'll show you how I make that link next week, in case you think that's a bit of an extreme link. You'll, you'll see it in the next passage that Jesus makes that link. 
Jesus is telling us to serve people who have no status in our society. That's the picture of what it might look like in the church and then in the home. As we come to home life, let me salute parents, especially stay-at-home mums, mums who, who give up good careers to care for their children and in the process sacrifice stimulating conversation and, and sacrifice an engaging work and career and, of course, sacrifice sleep giving up time and status in a desire to ensure their children grow up to be well-adjusted by knowing that they are loved and, and, of course, teaching their children about the Lord Jesus. Now, please, if you're a working mum, please don't mishear me to be saying you're doing anything wrong. I'm not knocking what you're doing. This is just a shout-out, an acknowledgement of the sacrifice of those who choose to stay at home and give up a career because not many people give them much of and applause. And dads at home, well, biblically, we are the heads of the household, but, but don't misunderstand that to mean that you rule the roost and get the rest of your family to do whatever you say. Beware the controlling power play at home. Uh, at home, dad, verse 35, be the servant of all. Serve your wife and your children. When you get in after a long day's work, keep working, but now work for them by serving them. Know that your wife and children need you to serve them. Don't hide behind, I've had a busy day, love, and are earning a living for us. She's had a busy day too. And the children need you to model service at home. At church, at home, and then thirdly, at work. Now, the preacher and author, Tim Keller, uh, writes uh, these words. If at the very heart of your worldview is a man dying for his enemies, then the way you're going to win influence in society is through service rather than power and control. That's very good, isn't it? This means at work we need to be different from the world around us. We need to guard against ungodly ambition. Again, don't mishear me. There's nothing wrong with ambition and wanting to be getting on in your career. I'm talking about ungodly ambition, where our identity is tied up in reaching a position at work, where we're prepared then to push others down in order to get ourselves up. If we guard against that kind of ungodly ambition, then we'll be able to live differently because having a servant attitude at work won't always be popular. It might mean that we'll miss out on promotion and, and certainly recognition. Now, Christians at the top of the tree at work will have to think carefully what appropriate servant leadership looks like. Of course, it doesn't mean spending all your time at work doing the jobs of people on a lower pay grade. You're not employed to do that. This will take some careful consideration uh, to work it out. My predecessor, Hugh Palmer, used to say, if I spend all my time moving chairs, something's wrong. If I spend none of my time moving chairs, something's wrong. He's not here primarily to move chairs, but if he's never prepared to do it, where's the servant-heartedness in that? Think what a witness you'll be at work if you appropriately serve others, even those who are nothing in your workplace if you're ready just to look out for them and have the right word, a kind word here and there, you don't think yourself as great. You don't see them as nothing. You'll humbly stand out as someone who, who's different. 
Someone who doesn't have to push themselves forward because you don't have to have the next promotion, because your identity is not in your position at work, because you have a greater ambition for the kingdom of God than for your own advancement. That's how to influence society. Well, look, my time has virtually gone, so you'll need to explore more of this in your small groups, and let me encourage you to do that. This is not a difficult passage in many ways. It's just difficult to live, so don't spend a long time when you study this in 10 days' time looking at the passage all the time, spend time working this out, what it will mean like in your different settings. Finally and briefly though, let's go back to where we started, looking at the Lord Jesus, the exalted son of man dying on a cross. If I'm going to avoid the mistake of the disciples, wanting to be the greatest, then I, well certainly I need to daily come to the cross and I guess most of us will need to do the same. Because you see at the cross, I see that I'm not great. I'm a sinner, a terrible failure. That is why Jesus had to die for me. And so the cross rightly humbles me when I try to exalt myself, when I start feeling big. I'm nothing. But the great thing about the cross is as I go there, I become secure too. Because at the cross I'm loved and accepted despite my failings. And so because of the cross, I don't need to find approval and recognition from anywhere else. I don't need to reach a position in society to be someone. At the cross, I am someone. I'm a loved child of the king of the universe. And then you see as a secure child of the servant king, well, then I am really free to serve. Let's pray. How marvellous, how wonderful is the Saviour's love for me. Our Father, we thank you for the yeah, marvellous and wonderful, amazing love of the Lord Jesus. We thank you that the one who had and has all authority in the entire universe should come and die. We thank you that that changes everything for us, both for eternity but also for now. And we pray, please, that you'd help us to be those who, once we've allowed him to serve us in that way and have embraced that for salvation, then become those who live this way. We pray you'd help us to see that we're not so great, but that we are very secure. And we pray that that would enable us to be ready to be the servant of all for your praise and glory. Amen.